Um, I'm here uh, on, let's see, it's February 18, 2017 with Dr. Sue Whitney. And um, we are, let's just go over your bio first. You're a Temple University for, P, you, you went to Temple University for your PT education and you got your PhD in motor development and motor learning from the University of Pittsburgh, correct? And your DPT was from MGH Institute of Health Science. You've worked in various settings as a therapist, and uh, currently you're a prof professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Health Science and Rehab. You're the program director for the Centers of Rehab Services, Balance and Vestibular Rehab Center. And you're a faculty researcher at the Medical Virtual Reality Center in Pittsburgh. You're a fellow of the APTA. Um, you're a member of the APTA Board of Directors, and you've authored and co-authored over 90 articles on Medline. Uh, and 10 articles published in the last year, and incredibly involved internationally. Did I miss anything? Mm -mm. Nope, got it all in there? Right. So I'm after sorry. all of that, <laughs> what made you decide to become a PT? If you go way back, what was that initial desire? I was a volunteer at, well, I wasn't a volunteer. I went with my friend who was a military dependent to Valley Forge Army Base. Okay. So she used to have to go and buy um, stuff at the PX for her family. Mm -hmm. So we'd go in this little VW um, uh, car. And at the time, of course, seatbelts weren't, you know, you, it wasn't mandatory. So I'd be hanging out of the, the car uh -huh. and waving to people because we were just stupid teenagers. And we would go and play basketball. And when we played basketball there, we met all these persons who had had an amputation. Um, this was at the end, or kind of after the Vietnam War, and uh, I thought it was pretty cool. So what we did was we toured the facility, because you could do anything on an army base then, and uh, I met some of these guys and I thought, boy, this is really cool. I, I kind of like this. Maybe I should learn about PT. Hmm. So and that, that was it. That was it. Yeah. So you knew right out of high school that that's where oh, you went, and that was school. that yeah. was your track. Mm -hmm. You were on track for it, and everything else. That's yep. what a great way to kind of yeah. It's probably sixteen. It must have made a huge impression on you. Obviously, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have benefited from that. So, what position? What was your initial, your first physical therapy position like? What was it? What setting? What was it like when oh. you first got out of school? Yeah, Moss Rehab. It was great. Okay. So I had done a, an affiliation there, and I had decided that I was going to be the, the best at spinal cord injury. So by the time I left, I was the supervisor of the spinal cord injury unit. Yeah. That's the best. It was just, you set that at the bar at the best. Yeah. And so you I accomplished did. it, and then you moved on. Yeah. And so what made your decision from moving from a clinician to a clinical researcher? How, how did you make that? No, it wasn't that. that. The, the, the big, how the did big you make that transition? Was, was not to be a clinical researcher. That's okay. not why I got a master's no. degree. Okay. I got a master's degree because I didn't want people to tell me what to do. Because I worked with physiatrists, okay. and I thought that I was as smart or smarter than the physiatrists, and they didn't listen to me. So I decided to get a master's degree so people would listen to me. And I did I, I, I ninety had, articles later, no they're plan. listening. I had no plan on okay. writing anything at the time. I really? Just, yeah, I just wanted. 
I wanted to put myself in a position where people would respect my knowledge and skills. Okay. And my plan was to be, um, I think it's Kathy Curtis is her name, that she, she was like my, my uh, role model. So I was involved in wheelchair sports with people with spinal cord injury, with the VA games and also the, there was a, another group that kind of did international um, wheelchair sports. So my goal was to finish my degree and um, be the best PT in that area <laughs> of you know being like this wheelchair sports PT kind of person. So that was why I went to school. Okay, was there something that um, that mentor person or those early mentors said to you that you carried with you as you moved through your career? That made an, you know, that you recall making an impact or something that really stood out to you? Not specifically, but I, I knew as a PT student, I... I know it sounds ridiculous, but I sat there and knew about APTA awards and things like that, and I, I knew I wanted to do that. Okay. So it was all about setting those goals and looking forward to the future, but it was just the knowledge of, of knowing that, yeah, that they I, were available. I, I, I set a goal, and I'm relentless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, I am. It, it, it's a curse and a positive, uh-huh. both. Yeah, so I just I always was somebody who said I want to be one of the best at whatever it is. So when you got that degree, did you feel like they listened to you? At, at Masters? No. No, I, no. And in fact, after I finished that, I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I interviewed in Texas at Tier, because Tier is uh-huh. such a great place. And I interviewed at Texas Women's, and I interviewed at Pitt, and I got jobs at all the places, but... Um, I probably would have ended up at Texas, at Texan, but um, everybody scared me when I came down here about the bad weather. That mm-hmm. It's always hot and humid. And, oh, you have to have an air conditioner everywhere and this and that. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to live in a little box. So then I wasn't sure what to do, but um, I decided I'd, I'd start at Pitt. And if I didn't like it, I'd quit. I'd give it a year. And then after a year, I quit tried to quit and the dean pulled me in the office and said you only gave it a year and I said but the students don't like me I'm a bad teacher I'm, I'm not very good at this I'm gonna quit and she said just just stick with it a little bit longer and so I did and the, is that when you transitioned to your PhD program and and doing that because you you've you enjoyed you, you no, stuck I, it out? No, I only did the PhD because I knew that if I didn't get a PhD, I wouldn't be able to to continue to teach. I really had no plans to, to, to do research. <laughs> I still wasn't in research. No, I slept. I kind of slept in Kevin Cody's research class. And I love Kevin Cody. But uh, who was, uh, Dr. Cody was one of my instructors. But I don't know whether you've ever done this, but you, you do one of these. It, you know, you, yeah. you know the, you the cover, the, cover the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the eyes look yes. down. From, and, like, I, if I was one of those people who would pass out, I would have passed out in the research class because I thought it was really boring. So, um, and research class is kind of boring, yeah. depending on how it's right. taught. And poor Kevin, uh, it, it was boring. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now I, I hadn't planned on doing that at all. 
No, it was only because I, I thought, well, if, if I want to teach, they, they're telling me I have to have a PhD, so I decided I better go back to school. And then, then they started telling me that if I wanted to keep my job, I better do some research. So I decided, okay, I, I, I've got a really good friend who is an OT, and we did a couple stroke studies. And, and then at the same time I did my master's degree, I got my athletic training certification, so I was involved in the master's program in sports. And taught, I actually taught a lot of the orthopedic stuff. Uh, in the entry-level um, PT program. And, and I thought, well, I can do, get into the sports stuff. So I did a lot of stuff with sports and and uh, wrote some papers, started writing mm-hmm. some things related to that. And, and then it just kind of evolved. So it was sort of this organic type of a, It just evolved. It met whatever need you had in your life at the time. Now, how did you manage... How did your family feel about that transition? How did you manage that work-life balance? Oh, having two babies when you... Well, I, I was lucky because I at least wasn't pregnant when I did the coursework because I could buzz through coursework. That's easy. It's the dissertation part. So I was on the real long, long, long-term plan because with two kids it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So it took me probably six or seven years, which is ridiculous, to get a PhD. But when you work full-time and you have two kids, it's a bit of a challenge. Um, but but thank God my husband was supportive or I couldn't have done anything. Yeah. And both my kids were, were old enough that, um, and Mr. Rogers was actually our graduation speaker, but so they, they knew him, so that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, it, it, it took me a long time. Do you think that your commitment to education translated into your children? I don't know what you mean. Like your commitment to your own um, educational development. Do you think that rubbed off on them when they were small kids? One and one, yes, one not. Not. I mean, I always kind of wonder that. You know, when you have you have people with with therapists with lives that are also passionate about their career, yeah. and does that does that rub off on? On, on those kids that are watching. Yeah, one's, one's got a PhD and finished his postdoc and published in genetics yesterday, and he's published in Nature, and the other one uh, was a three-year college dropout with a QPA of 3.5. So it is and what it is. he does mm-hmm. heating and air conditioning, yeah. and he likes it, and God bless him. I think it's great. That's, that's yeah. But definitely a commitment to, to work and being the best, maybe. Um, yeah, they both work hard. Yeah, proud. it doesn't matter what they do. They yeah, so maybe it's hard. not about education, but maybe it's about a work ethic and your yeah. dedication to what you're trying to accomplish, and that yeah. you can accomplish the goal. Yeah. Um, how did you get introduced to vestibular rehab? Because that's a primary area. Oh. Of, you know, that was a fluke. So Joe Furman was was new guy in town, my MD PhD buddy, and uh, I call him my work husband because uh, we've worked together so long. And, and I, 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 I mean, I, he, I don't love him like my husband, but I love yeah. him, you know, because we're such good friends. Uh, but Joe came to a faculty meeting, and it was actually pretty wild. So he came and he said, now, I, Faye Horak and Ian Shumway Cook are doing something out on the West Coast, and, and um, I, uh, when I send my patients to PT all the time, they hand them a cane and they send them home, and, like, there's got to be more than that. 
So Karen Maloney, who was uh, is an, uh, an OCS now and was do- teaching all the ortho stuff, she and I both kind of said, we're interested. So we put up our little hands. And uh, about three months later, Karen was a dropout. <laughs> and... Uh, and I stayed in. Because you wanted to be the best, <laughs> well, I, is my guess. Well, no, no. I, I didn't know anything about <laughs> okay. this. I was, I was so clueless, it's beyond belief, because there, was, there were probably under 10 papers in the world mm. written at that point. So what, what time period was that, you think? Well, I was pregnant with EJ, so it's 1985. Five. Okay. Yeah, and there were probably 10 papers, if that. The Cooksey-Cawthorn papers, the ones from Belgium... And just a little bit of information was coming out of um, Anne and, and Faye. And because uh, that was pre Anne and Faye, one of their, their key papers. So I said, I'll, I'll try this. And I used to roll people around. I did. I never do that, that crazy. Well, I call it crazy. I should yeah. say that. But the, the um, you know, the, the test that Neil, um, Neil Shepard came up with, the, uh, is it called something where you roll them and you say how dizzy are you the motion sensitivity question yeah yeah that was the only thing out there and that actually was based on the group in, in Belgium and uh, so I, I wasn't using Niels I was using the one from Belgium and I thought it didn't take me long to figure out that that was not going to work for me so I, I started doing some other things but uh, yeah I, there was nothing there um, it's hard to believe now with all the the data that's out there but there was nothing so what was your first patient like oh do you recall one of those first people that that walked into your clinic from dr Furman that no, you didn't I, put a cane in their hand and tell them to go out the door no i i, I well i started as viewer adaptation nobody was doing really at that point i I did a lot of habituation stuff, and I didn't think it worked real well. So I made a lot of people sick. That I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't make people sick now very often. So I think I was so poorly skilled. I was doing what, what they said in the papers, but it really wasn't working very well. So it was it, it was kind of frustrating because I, I didn't know what to do. So how did you make that jump to where you were getting changes in people? When did you see that? that start to happen well, it was a lot of trial and error because uh, you know I was so stupid when I started um, I would tell Don Cameron who's chief of otology I'd say Don I don't really care what the diagnosis is just send them down to me I only treat symptoms so it doesn't matter now if anybody said that to, to me I'd probably bash him in the head because there's so much data that says that diagnosis and comorbidities really do affect outcomes but at the time, I didn't know any better, so I had no rules. So I pretty much did similar things to everybody, and obviously it didn't work on a lot of people. So it was pretty frustrating. Mm. Do you recall your first BPPV patient, your first repositioning? You know, that that was actually after I had gone to Hopkins. The, Hopkins had this big course, I think in the it was maybe in the early 1990s, and I went there, and at that time, a lot of people didn't even believe in repositioning. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was early 90s, because until probably 1995, I don't, there were a lot of people who didn't believe that BPPV even existed. 
you know, Shutnik had done this work, and you know, there are the hypotheses even by Baronet years ago, but but um, it was really when Lauren Parnes showed that the Otoconi actually existed when he did his canal plugging procedure that I think people really believed that this was real. Mm. Okay. You know, poor John Epley, I don't know how he survived all that mess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he got he raped over the coals. I know he did, and got... God, yeah, he just did the right thing, mm-hmm. and he stood by and didn't let those people intimidate him. Right, right. What would you say would be your biggest contribution to clinical practice, having look at where those early years of when you were, you know, starting out to now, mm-hmm. something maybe you're really proud of? Well, actually, probably the proudest thing I, I, I'm, is where the sake has come, because. I had failed at, uh, twice at running for APTA board. So I said, okay, th- another door is gonna open. So I decided that my goal in life was to improve care around the world. And I know that's like, you know, I know I sound really like weird, but but <laughs> I have big goals. Yeah. I, <laughs> oh I, yeah, they're big. <laughs> I, I think, I try and think big. So my goal was to improve care around the world. Mm. And that's what the SIG is doing. You know, Anne has done an amazing job. Vestibular I, rehab SIG. Yep, yeah, the vestibular SIG. I tried, tried to get, get people on the right path and she's just taken it. And I have absolutely no doubt that, that the things that, that the group is doing have influenced care everywhere. And how do you take that around the world? And what, what avenue do you do you do that with? Well, when, when I get invited to teach, I, I actually demand a an internet connection in the room, whether it's in the United States or any place else, and I always pull, up, pull it up. And one of the things I love to do is if I'm in the Arab world, I show some Arabic, mm. you know. Or if okay. I'm um, in, say, in Argentina, or, or I show the Spanish ones, you know. Uh, for the fact sheets and things like that. So people can see that even though it may not exactly be their Spanish, it's it's close enough that there are resources that other people have already developed that can help their patients living in their country. Hmm. And they smile, you know, because I've actually used, uh, I treated a, um, a couple people when I was in Kuwait, and I printed out, uh, you know, what is BPPV for them, and, and the smiles that you get are so cool. They're so happy. Now, clinically, is there something that you go back, because you're in so many different areas. I mean, if you look at your, those 90, the, the 90 published works, there are, there are lots of different subjects that come up in that. I mean, mm-hmm. anywhere from orthopedics to I mean, just elderly fallers, you know, um, various vestibular diagnoses, I mean, different BPPV stuff, I mean, just, there is just, it's across the board diverse. (laughs) Would you say that clinically there's something that you, you know, more from a clinical perspective that you're really, you know, look back and say, that I really felt like I made a difference here clinically to the way we practice? Well, two things. The, The migraine papers, I think, that mm. Diane and I put together, um, really showing that vestibular rehab helps people with migraines. Mm-hmm. I think that was important. Uh, Barra's work that he did with Pat and I, that was, I think it's really the, f- well, it was the first paper that showed that 
that sport concussion and people with concussion mm. really do get better with vestibular rehab, I think, was key. But the, the thing that I'm hoping will be the biggest contribution is what we're, I'm working on right now, which is um, what we're trying to develop is what is comparable to the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire for back pain. And what we want, the goal is to be able to say, these people are going to get better on their own. They may or may not need PT. Uh, by the paper and pencil test. These people need PT, and these people over here need PT and maybe psychology or psychiatry mm-hmm. or drugs or whatever. So we've we've put together, um, Jeff, Jeff Staub has helped us. Um, you know, we've had an international group to, that contributed to the Delphi project, and we've got data now to, on 100 patients to see it, we, we collected the data, and then three months later we asked them, I don't care what they did, mm. doesn't matter. Three months later, are you any better? And so what we're gonna try and do is figure out if the people that got better, do they have this kind of profile? The people who are kind of in the middle have this kind of profile, and the people over here that you could pretty clearly say, say on day one that these people aren't gonna get better. Mm. But it asks things like, are you afraid to exercise? Are you afraid that exercise is going to make you more dizzy? Are you, um, you know, the, oh, woe is me, you know, the catastrophizer. Mm-hmm. So it incorporates anxiety, catastrophization, um, you know, this fear of exercise, the fear of avoidance that I think is really key with our persons with dizziness. And I am hoping that that questionnaire will help all of us um, guide care so people get the right care at the right time and that it also decreases cost. Mm. So we treat the people that really need us, not treat everybody. So if that works, which I think it will, um, that I think will really have an impact on care worldwide. Yeah, sort of put that stamp, that Sue Whitney stamp on this well, is how I change practice. It's, and there's, it's there's a, a lot of intellectual property yeah, here. Yeah. Not this, right. This, it's not just you. It's I'm, a group I'm, effort. but yeah, Very group but effort. But definitely something that you brought to the table and participated in. and yeah. that's ex- That'll be exciting. How do you yeah. think, as um, one of the things that has come up recently is this movement system diagnoses. Mm-hmm. How do you think, um, well, in this case, like vestibular patients fall into that sort of thought process. Um, oh, I do you see think it, it'll I be an easy everything. fit? Oh my God, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's what, that's what we did when we watched all those folks with the um, call functional gait disorder. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the, the right name. It was Fun- the... Functional neurologic disorder. Right, functional neurologic disorder. Uh, but but that's what we all just did in that room. So, so yeah, are you... That's what we do when we look at eye movements. Right. And when we watch people walk. So are you looking... F- you think that's a good fit for a therapy to move in that direction for the APTA to kind of take that as a goal? Well, I've been on the first two task forces, so you better believe I'm passionate about it. Okay. Because I think that's an interesting pendulum to swing because, you know, movement analysis was something in the, in the nineties when I got out of school was, it was a huge thing and we moved to outcome measures and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a measure for everything now or maybe not everything, but we're trying to get to that point. And now we're swinging a little bit the other way where it's kind of back to how do we standardize that movement analysis. Yeah, Yeah. well, and and I think the the most important thing is the patient history. So you listen to them, 
you ask the right questions and you watch the move. That's that's really what we do, I think, as vestibular PTs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it, it'll be a good fit, I think. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing it already. Now we just need to standardize it. That's right. Um, so internationally, you travel all over. Your passport is full to the brim. So, so you recently spoke at, am I saying that right, Barony Society? Mm-hmm. Uh, Society in Korea in 2016. So what do you think the future role of the United States physical therapist is um, in in the international community? What what can we bring to the table as as United States physical therapy in neurology? What do we bring to the table that you've well, observed? Well, there's no doubt that we're the most organized group in the world. Um, the 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 Canadians, ha- I think, have a subgroup, but I don't think they're as strong. And the only other group that's probably close um, is the UK. It, it, yeah, I mean, there there are key folks throughout Australia, of course, uh, and there's a really neat group in New Zealand. So, you know, in terms of the developed countries, uh, I, I'd say we still have we have obviously the largest group and probably the most engaged group of of all of them. Hmm. Yeah. Where so we can bring organization and maybe stability, or no, it's initiation. No, okay. I mean, if you look at the podcast and you even look at things like the abstract of the week, those are things that can be pushed out internationally to everybody. So, so it's it's the people power that the I think we have we have so much more people power okay. than some of the other groups. Although, if you look in the UK, they're already prescribing drugs. So, so in the UK, if I were a, a specialized physiotherapist and vestibular, you and I would both be prescribing certain mm. medications if needed. You know, I don't like to think about drugs unless they're really needed. But um, they are actually have the ability to prescribe a certain certain formulary of drugs that they they're within their purview. And do you think that streamlines their practice? I don't know. What they're trying to do is cut costs. Mm-hmm. So in, in the UK, the, the idea was that if the physios could actually prescribe some of the meds, it would decrease cost. And I'm sure they're studying that. I don't think, I haven't seen any of the, the data yet, but I guarantee that they're looking at, at costs because that was the entire reason why it was done. Okay. So with us bringing manpower to the table, where do you see that going in, you know, in the future? Where do you see the international therapy community moving to? Because you're all over the world talking to therapists all over the place. Right. What, what do you think as a vision for the future? Well, part of what I'm doing is um, getting people from different continents to collect data on projects. Okay. So, so, and that's part of what DizzyNet is, is starting to do. That's their idea. So in the, Europe, in the EU, um, what Zvergel, Dr. Zvergel's doing is really great guy. He's one of the people we're hoping to invite to come next year. He's he's trying and from the he's a neurologist, so he's trying to collect data from different centers across Europe so that they, we can answer and get big data. Okay, so that's their effort. Um, I'm actually working with different centers to try and see if we can collect smaller PT data because you have to have a lot of money to collect big data. And then down the road, hopefully, if the registry works, the PT registry, 
if we can collect vestibular data, because right now it's designed primarily to be uh, orthopedic outpatient practice, mm -hmm. if we can collect vestibular data, then we'll have big data here in the U.S. to answer questions. So looking ahead, we should be looking for ways to participate in that data collection. Absolutely. If we want to make an impact and participate, it's going to be a huge part of it. Um, Tell me about a funny story internationally as you've you've made your travels around the world and speaking um, and kind of being an ambassador in some ways for, for a physical therapist. And do you have a memorable story or, or one that stands out, an experience? One of the stupidest things I ever did was, um, and I've done many, uh, was in Saudi Arabia. No, it was Kuwait. It was in Kuwait. Um, I'm teaching, no, it was Saudi Arabia, because the first time I've been in an Arab country. And we're teaching the horizontal roll, right? The reposition, mm -hmm. a barbecue roll maneuver. So I get the person prone, and I'm saying, okay, well, there's three ways that you can do this. You can continue and do what it says in the literature. You can slide them off the side of the bed and stand them up. And I said, you can also sit, you know, kind of put them up in the kneeling position, but nobody, you know, it, and all, all the old adults can't do that. And they all looked at me. And I looked at them, and one of them was brave and said, all of our older adults can do that. <laughs> and I looked at them and said, what do you mean? And they said, well, five times a day we get on the floor and we pray, and we pray in that position. <laughs> I was like, you are such a jerk, Sue. <laughs> that was pretty dumb. Yeah, so I was culturally insensitive and uh, just didn't get it. Yeah, so that was one of my loser loser experiences. So yeah. maybe that's something too to be looking for is to be learn to be culturally sensitive mm -hmm. as physical therapists. Oh yeah, as we grow internationally, how, what does that look like? How does that work? Uh, well, that is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important. And you know, you're up there talking about bounce and falls, and I can't tell you the number of times I've tripped. I've not hit the ground, but you know, there's always wires on the floor, and you know, I'm invariably tripping. And probably the stupidest, stupidest thing was what I did at the Emory course. Uh, but uh, do you know about this? Oh my God, this is so stupid. Uh, I, I, it, know, wasn't, maybe. it wasn't me. It really wasn't. But there was this, this student. I think it's from Emory or Duke, one of the two. And I called him up. And you know the mini best. I think the mini best is great. So Faye developed that test. And the, one of the parts that I like the best is the where they lean in and you release and, and you see how many steps they take, etc. So in every patient, I'm like, Miss Guard, I am so careful, right? Because so, you know, I don't want to write an incident report, and I certainly don't want them to get hurt, right? So I'm doing this, and, and there's, you know, at Emory, there's like 250 people watching you, right? And they're like right there. So this guy comes up. He leans into me, and I, and I release, right? And he's 22 years old. He's going to take a step, Right? He went down like a tree. Boom! On to, on, it was hardwood. And, and everybody was, I mean, the gasp, including me, the gasps were like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? But I never, I, I never expected him not to take a step. So when you're prepared for somebody to fall, you catch them. When you're not prepared, you don't get them. So yeah, so he uh, it was it, it was mortifying. Thank God he didn't get hurt. But uh, I, I have never 
anybody who was there that year, they all remember that because mm. it was so dramatic. Oh. So that was pretty darn stupid. So anytime I do it now, I tell everybody, now you will take a step, you know, like you will not fall down on me, right? Right, right. Yeah. He must have had complete trust in you. Well, but I don't, <laughs> and I still don't know why he didn't take a step. I don't even know whether he had protective extensions. I mean, it really? just, well, it happened so fast. It, it was so ugly. And I, I, I think I, I was so stunned. I, I it took mm. me a while to recover from that one. I bet. I bet. That was a real loser. Um, you're on a lot of boards. I'm just. It seems like every time I turn around or we walked through the the conference section, there was someone that you were serving on a board with or are you going to be at that meeting or there was something like that. So you're on the APTA board of directors. Mm-hmm. What other leadership positions do you have right now going on? Well, I just, I just finished. I spent seven years, no, actually eight, I think. Uh, I was the on the State Board of Physical Therapy, so that was neat. Okay. So I know a lot about that um, from my experience. And I'm the, the co-vice president with Judy Deutsch for the WCPT input group, which is the International um, Neurovestibular Group, so that's cool. And uh, I think those are the only boards I'm on. I used to be on the ALS board, which was great. Okay. Uh, locally, just locally. And you, um, you were the vestibular rehab SIG chair for right. for a few years um what what are some of the what do you think makes an effective leader in physical therapy serving on some of those boards and getting and to get things done well what's you the key passionate you have to be committed and you have to follow through okay yeah. um kind of switching topics clinically you're doing a lot of stuff with virtual reality you've been doing mm-hmm. that for a while mm-hmm. where do you see that going how how are we going to be able to implement some of that in pt practice oh there's you a, serve on the faculty at the uh of the faculty you're a faculty researcher at the medical virtual reality center oh yeah so so here's here's where it's going um the your iphone so there's a, a buddy of mine um, who's a, an engineer computer scientist, a guy in Israel, and I haven't seen it yet, but uh, the, the cardboard virtual reality boxes, so you slip it into your little cardboard goggles, you're going to have your, your phone there. I mean, there are problems. There are definitely problems with field of view. There are problems with um, virgins because it's too close to the face, but I think a lot of us are going to be using... Um, the, those little virtual goggles, and uh, he's supposed to send me send me the program when it starts to work. So, so do you think it will it will affect outcomes pretty significantly? I don't know. There's no data yet that says yet. it's any better than. Here's here's where I think we've all screwed up. Um, I, I don't know because if you look at Dara's study and you uh, Dara Multrum and uh, and our uh, small randomized trial, they both show that it works, but they don't show that it's better than anything else. And I think we've all screwed up. And we've tried to rectify that with some of our newer work that we're doing in the uh, MVRC lab, is that we've chosen people that aren't all symptomatic to motion. Mm -hmm. So I think that we've screwed up because we've treated all people with virtual reality 
who may or may not be symptomatic. So what we're starting to do now is we're using um, Dannenbaum's uh, form, the visual vestibular um, analog scale, and we've modified that a little bit. So we're using her original, and I told her we have some modifications, and so we're testing the modifications to see if it's any better than her original. But what we're doing is we're screening people and we're looking at people who have it, and then we're exposing people. So right now we're looking at brain function. So you have visual vertigo, so you score 30 on that scale, okay? And we're putting you in the lab and we're exposing you to all these dots moving, and we're looking at how your brain fires. And then we're doing age-match controls to look at what they do. And we're also doing some dual cognitive tasking while they're walking, looking at brain function. And this looks at how much blood flow there is in, in your brain. And we're especially interested in the parietal temporal area. And what we're trying to do is figure out if you behave differently because you have, or your brain behaves differently because you have a vestibular disorder and you're visually provoked by these things versus me who doesn't have a vestibular disorder. Okay. And I'm dying to know what we're going to mm -hmm. find out. Um, and then we're looking at frontal lobe because that's the only thing we can do is frontal lobe function while they're doing dual tasking during walking with people with vestibular disorders. But the whole idea is, is like, wow, um, how do people behave? And with this virtual reality thing, what we found was that when we mixed people who didn't have the visual vertigo, we didn't find much. It kind of washed out. But I think if we choose, we're very selective of who we put in there. And I think those are the people who really need it. And I think if we, my hypothesis is that if we treat those people with virtual reality, they're the ones who really need it. And then it might be an incredibly effective intervention. Mm. But when you mix the people that it doesn't bother with the people that it does bother, what do you have? Right. Wash out. Wash out. Yeah. Do you think there's other applications for it in stroke and brain injury and oh, uh, sure. degenerative disease? Of course. In what way? Just well, just think more about motor planning. Right. Like even if you think about the walkers that we use with persons with Parkinson's disease with the lines on that can help people with stepping. If you could trigger that, and there's a group that's actually doing something like that. Um, they. Yeah, so there's just people being incredibly creative over the world um, with different ways to look at things. But certainly, if you could use the what is it the what are they called the Google Google glasses? What they have a name though? It's not Google glasses. What is it? The, Do you know what I'm the virtual about? the the ones that come yeah with the phone that it's the Samsung glasses. Those, it, Google. It, uh, but, you know, you can see the internet and all this okay. stuff, but you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Well, think about if, if you could just trigger, and somebody with Parkinson's disease, if you, in your glasses, if, oh, you, could glasses. Trigger, okay. if you could trigger a step with mm -hmm. the light and improve their stepping, improve their rhythmicity of gait, I mean, there's just all kinds of things. Like, like I know it's not virtual reality, but there's a group in Israel that's doing this neat thing with... Um, with people with chronic dizziness that they think that it's all related to where your eye is in space and that with visual correction uh, with these little these little prisms that they put on the glasses they're getting great results with people with chronic dizziness mm -hmm. so I think we have to just start to look at things a little differently and PT doesn't have all the answers you know what we need to do is look out to 
look around to all these other people investigating things to try and figure out how we fit and when we best are needed, mm. you know, to help people with vestibular disorders. So yeah, I do. I do think that there's there's uh, there's a lot of interest in, in the technology, um, but the the data isn't real clear about who it helps. And people like it, you know. So if you get good feedback and you can tell people they're doing well, it's like having a coach there in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when people when people have feedback, they're motivated, and that's one of the reasons why they come to us. Because if you look at a lot of a lot of the work, if there's not some human contact, almost everybody drops out. The OCD folks continue, but the rest of us we drop out without somebody checking on us. So maybe, you know, with telemedicine, we may be doing a heck of a lot of stuff um, with telemedicine in the future with vestibular. I treat people on Skype around the world. Uh, I was treating a guy recently from Turkey who had contacted me and he was educated and desperate and I said, let's set up a couple Skype calls and hopefully I helped him. You know, so telehealth, which is what Lucy Yardley's doing, um, and also um, Terry Schramm just published a paper using um, telehealth with the, the Wii uh, in people's mm-hmm. homes uh, is is where we have to go. We have to look a lot. We have to look at our mode of treatment to figure out when people need to see us and when we can virtually see us because telehealth is here and it's it's we have to we have to embrace it. And we have to figure out when it doesn't work. Mm. So, so, and we also obviously have to figure out how to get paid. That little caveat, yeah. yeah. But it's coming. You know, yeah. People pay. You know, people. If you stay in their home they and they live in North Dakota and they can consult with Sue Whitney in Pittsburgh, I, I guarantee through PayPal. You know, if I put a sign out there and I could legally do it, you know, or or you in in Southern California, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have to leave their home. But there's that check-in kind of thing, so that there's there's follow-up. That's that's. I really believe that the human interaction is so important, but I'm not sure it has to be face to face. Yeah, just in a comment and observation, I see you take that idea of feedback in lots of different endeavors that you do, whether it's in leadership or whether it's in. Um, a, a clinical setting or whether it's in um, working on a task force, whatever that is. Um, that's one thing I've observed in you is that that feedback, that gratification. Um, I've never worked in a leadership group that gave out so many awards. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and that's one thing that I've learned from you is that you take the time to acknowledge the individual and give that feedback, whether it's your patient, whether it's a colleague, whether it's, you know, someone doing some work on a task force. And that, that, that statement about feedback probably um, has a lot more broader, a, a broader impact um, in situations you've been than maybe you realize. Because if you don't tell people they're doing a good job, they, they stop doing it. Yeah. You know, they're not motivated anymore. Sometimes we forget that in our clinical practice, uh, particularly with our colleagues, that we don't take the time. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. We know it in our head, but we don't stop to to acknowledge it and yeah. say it out loud. 
I do a lot of hugs to patients. Yeah, did a yeah. great job. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you important. ever do you ever video yourself giving a message and text it to them? No, I've never done that. That's really cool. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, you have a patient with dementia. It works really well because <laughs> it's like a new message each time. You know, <laughs> you got to remember to push but, that button. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, you text it to the caregiver, and yeah. you know. This is what they said. The therapist said, you need to do this. And you press that button and yeah. they get a video message of the therapist. That's hysterical. So, yeah, I, I, do video, I do video the patients doing the exercises. And I think everybody should be doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For that, sure. That helps. What advice would you give to the new therapist just starting out? Read something. Learn something new every day. Because that's what I do. I have, and it doesn't matter what it is, but I, I I love I love to read, and I love to learn. So the presentation this morning was just phenomenal because mm-hmm. I knew some of those things, but I sure didn't know what they knew. And then I thought, oh, I got a lot to learn, so now I'm going to go home and I'm going to learn more. Mm-hmm. And I already re- I already bookmarked the the website, and I already ordered the book I'm supposed to read that they told us. <laughs> A lifelong learner. That will never stop. That will never stop. But you've been a therapist and been in the medical field long enough. What would you say, what advice would you give to the therapist that's 15, 20 years in that middle age, so Mm -hmm. to speak, place? What what advice would you give them? Get really good at something. Mm. Make your mark. You know, I know that, I mean, I'm a generalist too. I can treat, I can treat any neurologic disorder that walked in. I could treat some orthopedic and shoulder problems, you know, those kinds of things. I can still do that. But, but it's when you really get good at something and dive deep that, that I think that you get recognized for being good at something. And and I know that it's really important to be a good generalist. I, I that's good too, but but I guess I believe that that there's real power in having a deep dive in terms of of having specialized knowledge and and uh, that, yeah, because that's I started that right out of PT school. I I knew I wanted to do spinal cord injury, and I read everything I could about spinal cord injury. So that I could be really good at that, you know. So even if you're in acute care practice, like somebody like Britta, Britta's so freaking talented, and she can treat anything in acute care. But she's the go-to person for vestibular, and and it's really nice for a person to know that other people respect your knowledge and skills and come to you for advice. And and that's hard if you're just a total generalist, mm. you know. So that's what I think. You do a deep dive. That's a good way to end this, I think.